Good morning, afternoon, or evening. Welcome to the Not So Daily Show, the show that comes to you daily, except when it doesn't. I am your host, Timber Kevin. We've got a guest in the studio today, a clinical psychologist, Gomeziani Janazi. How are you doing, my brother? I'm good. How are you doing, man? Very well. It's good to have you here. Obviously, it's been a tough week, you yeah. know, as a country following the, the shocking and timely passing of one of our greatest superstars, um, you know, to come out of our country. So I wanted you to come here and help me unpack a few things around like mental health and, and all of that. So, yeah. Thanks no, for I think, Thank you for having me, actually. I think that would, it's a topic of interest for me personally because I think a lot of the times it's something that's pushed to the background. So it's a conversation I'm really happy to have. And yeah. hopefully we can unpack it in a way that's good enough for everyone today. Naturally, we, we may not be able to touch on everything, Yeah, 100%. but we can get the conversation started. 100%, totally agree. Well, before we get the conversation started, um, I, I was inspired to write a little rap for Ricky, you know, just in honor of his memory. So, so yeah, okay, let's do it like this. You were a legend before you opened the barbershop. I can't imagine you six feet under because you belonged on top. You put yourself second and always the cotton first. You put so many people on, who knows what you would have done next. Good people struggling makes you realize that life is not fair. We all wish you could have just hung in there instead of hung up there. But you said it yourself, this land is still your home. But now that you're gone, we all feel home alone. Sondela, my baby, in Tlesi. You're my baby, in Yakdin. Girl, my baby, my baby. Sondela, my baby, in Yakdin. Girl, my baby, in Tlesi. You're my baby, my baby. <laughs> so, yeah. I've been watching too much Genius, but... <laughs> But I was actually pleasantly surprised. Yeah, bro. I feel like the impact that this man made, yeah. um, it was just, it's just so difficult to understand in the moment. But when you watch like the outpouring of, of like just sorrow and all the goodbyes on social media, you kind of realize not just how touched people were, but how shocked people were. And when I look at the shock, I can't help but feel it's because of how happy, happy you looked. Yeah. I know that's a sentiment that you share. Firstly, I think I should just put this out there. I was actually pleasantly surprised with the hip hop because there's always like a little bit of concern whenever someone's like, I wrote a rap and it's like, oh, what's about to happen here? But, yeah, and I know the feeling. That was actually pretty good. Like you wrote something there. I, I, I like the lines on it. That was pretty oh, good. That was pretty out. good. Shout out. But, you know, I think whenever we're looking at loss, especially very sudden loss, mm. it's something that can take some time to process, you yeah. know, whereas... Um, if the person was ill or they were, um, the struggle was so evident, it's easy to sort of, you know, make sense of it in your head and say, this happened because of this. Yeah. You true. know? So whenever we are only looking at someone through social media or just the media as a whole, we tend to forget that we're looking at highlights in their lives. Oh, you know, so it can look, they can look really happy, but we don't really understand the picture of what's happening for them. You know, what's their day-to-day -day lived experience? What are they coping with? What challenges are they facing? And how exactly are those challenges affecting them? 
Yeah. So it can it can be a bit of a culture shock where it's like they looked so happy. Yeah. What happened? And I think I think that's actually what you know the world is going through now. And I think even like myself, not having like had a like a personal relationship with him, it's just gonna take like a bit of a while to to, to sort of reconcile those two ideas. But um, the reason I wanted to talk to you specifically as a yeah. man and uh, and a psychologist is because I wanted to understand like you know uh, to get like a twofold response in terms of like how men like Ricky being a man and having like when you listen to his music having rapped like so much about the pressures of life you know in one of the songs he released just before his passing he he says that his mom told him if you stop you know we all fall down if you stop we we'll all suffer so yeah. i wanted to get a response from you as a man like dealing with those pressures and also like just as a professional but before we go into all of that I want to just also like get an idea of who you are, you know, yeah. understand? So yesterday we went on a call and <laughs> we did, I got, we I got did. a bit of a feeling around <laughs> you. But the first question I asked you is like, how did you get into the field of psychology? Because mm. as we know, like most men only even learn about psychology after school and like later <laughs> in their lives when yeah. adulting happens. How, how did you get into psychology to, to end up studying psychology in undergrad? Well, I think, uh, and we talked about this last night, where yeah. I was like, uh, I gave you a little bit of the Cliff Notes version, where it's yeah. like, all right, here's a summary of everything that happened. Yeah. But my, my journey into psychology was a little, wasn't like a quick decision. Growing mm. up, I always thought I'd be doing something related to computers, you ah, know, because uh, the spaces that I grew up in, those are the careers that were accepted and oh. valued and recognized in a lot of ways. Yeah. So you say, I want to do psychology. It's like, you want to do what? Yeah. You know, I mean, even today, my mom describes what I do as, oh, he's a head doctor. I'm like, mom, yeah. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> you know, so I chose psychology because um, there were several events in my life that sort of impacted me pretty hard. Mm. And therapy was something that helped me through it. So, mm. um, you know, growing up, I was always really described as very effeminate, where uh, it would always be like, yo, the way you do things, you know, it's not typically what you'd expect of, you know, of a man. Like, ah, I, I, see, I gesticulate, I, I use my hands, yeah, I can yeah. be a little feisty, apparently, <laughs> when I speak. Yeah. You know, so people were like, yo, those gestures, like, it was a little suspicious, you know, it was yeah. a little sus. So, I, I became very anxious as a child because mm. I was always worried about, you know, when I present myself in the space, am I going to be accepted? Am I going to be validated? Am I going to be recognized as, you know, yeah, you should be here. Yeah. We're cool with you. You know what I mean? So I was always thinking about how am I coming across? How am I coming across? Yeah. And that made me a very anxious person. Ah, and see, see. that anxiety really got bad when I was about a teenager because yeah. some other things started happening in my life. Um, I was about 13 years old when I started realizing my dad had a substance abuse issue, uh, you know, with alcohol. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And yeah, like there was just so much turmoil in my life and I really wasn't coping too well. Yeah. So by 17, that anxiety was pretty bad. I also was pretty depressed at the time. I was not coping well at see, all. See, and see. my decision to go into psychology was like, yo, I actually really want to understand what's happening to me. Yeah. You know, and as I started studying and studying and studying, it, it started making more sense, but not quite. Yeah. So after I studied, I, I did this course where I could become a counselor after graduation. Oh, yeah. So while I started counseling, one of my supervisors noticed that, you know, I wasn't developing so quickly. Mm. And a big part of that for her was, you know what, maybe it has to do with personal stuff. Like he's yeah. got some personal baggage yeah. that's holding him back yeah. from actually really 
you know, interacting in the space authentically and stuff yeah. like that. So she recommended therapy. I see, I see. Um, and therapy like really helped me over a course of about three months, three to six months. And I saw some significant changes. See. Like I used to be so anxious, I couldn't even speak. So like you, you, know? you actually like looking at yourself before and after therapy, you could actually like recognize. Bro, it was massive. That's why I was like, I would go into a crowd, right? And yeah. people would be like, speak. And I would literally feel my world just shrinking. Damn, I yeah. couldn't even see properly. I would shake. I couldn't, I, I, yeah, I would speak, but you couldn't hear me. Whether you're like right there, you can't hear anything I'm saying. Damn, so my ability to function in social spaces was gone. Ah, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And with therapy, that started easing. And I you know, started unpacking a lot of that and realizing what happened. So when yeah. I got better, I got to thinking, was like, why didn't I go to therapy earlier? Because this was maybe eight years after I first noticed I was an anxious kid. Damn, yeah. You know, yeah. So I was like, what, what stopped me from seeking therapy? And it was like, the spaces that I grew up in. Because uh, yeah. I'm from Malawi, yeah. so their therapy, at least at the time, it's better now. Yeah. But it wasn't, it wasn't something that we look at. Yeah, which is a similar, a similar case in South Africa. I feel like we're a bit more advanced because, you know, we like to follow trends and therapies become like a trend. Yeah. You know? But um, I feel like because it's become like such a trend, um, a lot of people just jump into it without understanding it. So like uh, when people talk about like the Rick incident specifically, they talk about how like he was so self-aware of like his struggles and like he spoke about like his depression mm. and stuff. But um, I feel like there's still a misunderstanding in terms of like what the range of mental illness is. You know, like you mentioned yeah. therapy. You know, there's also like like I spoke yesterday about psychiatry, also about like different types of therapy. So like when you go to work every day, what is it that you actually do? Like, do you guys? Is it like a one-size-fits-all uh, solution? Like it's just, I'll counsel you, I'll tell you what's wrong with you, then when you leave here, you'll be good? Or is it like a process that once you are in there, like it's like a chronic illness, you know, like yeah. what, what exactly are the interventions of like, when you seek help, what interventions can you give? It's, it's sort of a process that you have to analyze as a clinician. Yeah. Because the person's going to come to you and they're going to say, you know what, this is what's happening in my life. Mm. And as you're consulting with them and you're getting that information, we put together um, a symptom profile, you know, yeah. so they're saying perhaps, let's say they're not functioning so well at school or yeah. at work or their relationships are suffering. They have very low mood. Um, they, their sleep is not um, as it used to be, very poor yeah. quality of sleep. Yeah. Sometimes they're not even sleeping at all. You know, those are just some of the symptoms you might see yeah. um, with more should I say severe illnesses, yeah. uh, sometimes you might even see perceptual disturbances where uh, they're perhaps seeing or hearing things that aren't there, uh, uh, which we call visual auditory hallucinations, you know, stuff like that. So yeah. those become the symptoms, like this is what we're yeah. seeing. Yeah. And then from there, we will then diagnose and say see. from the from the symptom profile, yeah. this is what I think you have. Because, see. you know, uh, there's a diagnostic manual that we use. We can't just say you have depression because, ooh, a gut feeling yeah, is exactly. telling me this Which is, is what we all think. Like, we go through, like, a bad, like a bad spell, go through a breakup, and we think, damn, that's, that's depression, you know, yeah. that's this. But, like, what you're saying is that it's actually, it actually has fallen certain categories. To it be, does. To be it classified does. as... Yeah. And depending on, like, the severity, like, the treatment is different. Yeah. So the so, different tre treatment options are, like, you could see a clinical psychologist. Yeah. Or, like, you could actually... 
and you could talk it out? Um, it talk, talk therapy is one of our approaches okay. where we then say, you know what, let's try counseling and see how it helps. But sometimes the, there is a strong severity to the symptoms and they're really impacting your functioning uh, in several domains, whether it's at work yeah. or at school or at home, in your relationships, and those things have an impact. Yeah. So there might be times where we think uh, perhaps it might be helpful if they're medicated. Yeah. That's when we refer to a psychiatrist. I see. Right? Because psychiatrists are doctors. I see. Right, so they went through the six years of medical school, and then afterwards, the, when they're re uh, registered doctors, they specialize in yeah. psychiatry. So they can actually prescribe medication yeah. if needed. We cannot, yeah. as psychologists, because we never went to medical school. We're not yeah. doctors. Yeah. So we'll refer to a psychiatrist, and if they agree, or in their own assessment, they say, you know what, this does need to be medicated, yeah. then that's something we'll do. Um, there are other illnesses that, regardless of the severity they need to be medicated because yeah. they have a very strong medical cause. So it's right? like chemicals in your head or like... Sort of, yeah. Because mental illness is often an illness of the mind. Yeah. And sometimes because we don't see it, we're not really... We, we, we don't understand what's happening in the person's mind. Mm. You know, their yeah. um, neurochemicals aren't perhaps functioning the way they should. Yeah. There's an imbalance in how they're being produced maybe not enough of that neurochemical is being produced or maybe too much. And because of that imbalance, medication helps sort of regulate that. I see, I see. Right? Yeah. So that's why I was saying with some illnesses, it has to be medicated. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. one of the most popular that must be treated is bipolar mood disorder. I see. Right? That one must be medicated. Yeah. But you know, like a question I have, uh, where I always ask myself is that, the psychology space so like i went to i went to see a psychologist for the first time late 2019 it was couples therapy yeah and uh, as we were looking and, and and we had to like choose a psychologist i realized that there's a lot of females in there you know and i always wonder like how why how is it that there's so many females in the industry like it's a female dominated industry <laughs> but the society societal eels are clearly male dominated like when you look at crime <laughs> rape uh fraud you look at all those things it's clearly like male dominated yeah and wh why do you think there's such a a disparity because like i can <laughs> say like as a man there are some some problems i have that i'm like yeah this a woman won't understand <laughs> you'd rather talk about it with another man exactly like well i feel like as a dude you, you know <laughs> now i think you're right because i've also come across something like that where there are some men who say no uh, i went to therapy but you know i had a female therapist and i just didn't know how to bring up that perhaps i'm having an issue with my um sexual functioning yeah. so how do i bring up an erectile dysfunction and the doctor told me it's likely psychological because there's nothing medically wrong and I'm sitting in front of this woman it's like no I'm not about to say that exactly. <laughs> you know so um there is actually uh some one of these popular psychologists I forgot her name but she's often speaking on the feminization of psychology where she says there's just so many women in this field and there are a lot of reasons truth is it's hard to pinpoint down to like one or two points where it's like this is why but uh, a lot of people and I think I agree with this look at it in terms of what are the areas of interest for most people. Yeah. So whenever you're talking to men or women, you find that most times uh, more women have an interest in people, in the relation, not the relation, sorry, in the occupations that they choose. Yeah. There's a stronger interest in people for yeah. women than in men. Whereas there are a lot of men who tend to prefer, um, they have interest yes. in things. 
you know i want to go into engineering i want to go into medicine i want to work with cars um and some of those interests kind of play a factor into the occupation that you choose yeah right so it's about getting men more interested in interpersonal relations because i think that plays a significant role in getting men interested in therapy because a lot of men tend to think therapy is just talking it's like, yeah. I, I don't see myself being in a profession where I'm just talking, talking to people, exactly. you know, about their problems all day. It's yeah. like, mm, it's not a strong career choice for me. More men might then say, I want medicine. And then mm. perhaps there'll be a psychiatrist. So you might find there are more yeah, male psychiatrists. As they learn and they realize what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Then, like, speaking specifically of suicide, right? Um, when, when is there actually a classification of somebody is now suicidal instead of just depressed? Is there a line that somebody crosses or once you attempt to commit suicide once, you are now suicidal for the rest of your life? um, Suicide is a touchy topic because there isn't like a lot of agreement in how to categorize it. Mm -hmm. But once we start talking about suicide, we're looking at um, a desire or an attempt to take your own life. Right, so that's where suicide as a category comes in. Uh, we also tend to differentiate between a suicide attempt and perhaps deliberate self-harm, where ah. you harm yourself, but there was no intent to die. I see. That is not considered a suicide attempt. Um, but perhaps if you do harm yourself with an attempt to die and it was spontaneous, that is still a suicide attempt, but it's seen as one that wasn't pre-planned. I see. So suicide we look at as, as a continuum. You know, it's not just one thing, there's a continuum of it. So it starts with suicidal ideations, which is perhaps thoughts of, um, thoughts of dying, which can either be passive or active. So it could be passive in terms of, um, I wish to die, maybe life wasn't better if I wasn't around. So it's a Let's passive see. thought, uh, whereas active is like, I actively want to die. And then that sort of transitions into, this is how I'm going to do it. So you start planning. You know, so whether you want to uh, um, go for an attempt that is perhaps more painful mm. or less painful, you start thinking about how do I want to do this? do this? I want to die now. How am I going to do this? So we start yeah. looking at that as active suicidal ideation. Like these are active thoughts. You might act on it. And then from there, we start looking at do you have a plan? How are you going to do it? Is your plan fatal? Are you doing something that has a high likelihood uh, of ending yeah. fatally, or is it something that you might survive? I see. You know, so 100%. that's where we look at the severity of the plan. And then from there, have you actively attempted before? Mm. Or has it always sort of just ended at a plan, but you've never acted? So mm. we, we separate it into those categories, and then that sort of helps us assess for risk. What is uh, the risk here that you are actively going to, to commit suicide to, to or complete it. suicide? I see. Um, so there's mild, moderate, severe. There's oh. different ways in which we look at it. If it's a mild risk, perhaps it could just be passive suicidal so, thoughts. Yeah. Um, and I should say, no matter where you are on the continuum, it's highly advised that there is an intervention, yeah. you know, that you do seek help. Yeah, and, and uh, speaking of interventions, so you know, like this past week, obviously after, the, after Ricky's passing, there were like videos floating around and interviews where you seem to say goodbye before. And these are interviews that are like, I think like a few months ago, you know, with like in an interview saying, if you never see me again, you'll be on stage saying, if you never see me again, you know. And then um, 
once like a person i think that's the stage where you can see somebody's actively planning it you know yeah in one song the song starts with uh, i think a million ways to die choose one so you see those those kind of trends afterwards but while that is happening what what power do like those around you have you know in terms of when you speak of interventions does like a friend a family member actually have the resources or the know-how to actually help because you know like after people pass a lot of people are left with guilt yeah and they feel like yo what could we have done and then that sometimes throws them into a depression so in terms of interventions what are the interventions that exist so to say what can you do what can you do i think that's also one of those things that gets a little tricky in terms of what can you do because in a sense there are options but it gets harder the more um, you're not sure how to interact with the person. Mm. So there is sort of, in a sense, you do need to get the person that is actively suicidal at that time to sort of collaborate with you on you know, appropriate ways to help them. Mm. So one of the first things you can often do is talk to the person. And sometimes that can be very difficult, you know, establishing that relationship where someone's open enough to say, you know what, this is something that I'm coping with mm. and I need help. Other times they really want to keep that to themselves because they're worried precisely of what you talked about just now. It's like, if I bring this out there, um, it's going to hurt the people that I care about. 100%. Right, because they're going to feel so guilty and they're going to be worrying more about is it their fault? And I don't want to put them through that, so I'd rather carry this by myself. Yeah. I, don't, I don't want to be a burden to them. So the, the first step is try to get the person in your life, if you are concerned about their well-being, to actively seek help. Yeah. Because that's where you get the highest chance of success. Yeah. Um, you could always try to get them to seek therapy, perhaps either in public hospitals or with a private therapist. I know with private therapists, it can be quite expensive for some. Yeah. So it becomes a lot more affordable at public hospitals. And I should mention that there are a lot of hospitals that yeah. do have psychiatrists and psychologists on staff that you can go to. Yeah. So most times if you're worried about the person in your life and you're not sure what can be done, take them to the nearest ER. Mm. in the hospital in your area yeah. and just tell them there is a concern that this individual is suicidal and we consider it to be high risk. Yeah. We're concerned that there will be imminent action towards those thoughts or they've already acted in the past. Yeah. What happens then is the, they, they call the psychiatrist down to the ER to consult with the person and depending on their assessment, they might decide to immediately have them admitted to the hospital to seek treatment or they might prefer for therapy and what we yeah. call outpatient. So you're still at home, but right. let's say you, yeah. you then go to the clinic for treatment and then you leave again. You're, not, you're not inpatient in the hospital. I see. I yeah, see. so that's, that's an option that can happen. If there is um, immediate concern for this person's safety, like once they leave, we're not sure yeah. that they're going to act on it or not immediately or even very soon afterwards. What happens sometimes is that um, there is what we call an involuntary admission. Mm. So the person is deemed a risk to their own safety. I see. And then they put in like a controlled environment for a specific amount of time while they're monitored. That yeah. makes, makes a lot of sense. But one thing I wanted to touch on is something that we spoke about yesterday and it applies specifically to men. When you look at like a, a situation like, like, um, like the rigorous situation specifically, when you've built so much social capital, you know, and you actually said something about Will Smith yesterday, you said like when you've built so much social capital and you see how the world treats people that seek help or that speak out, then like what, what like, 
what what is left to to do you know like yeah. because you know we keep saying you know, just talk it's not it's not so harmful but we've actually seen as a society that it's like very harmful so in terms of like the profession is like social media standards and and pressures are they recognized because obviously that didn't exist when the psychology textbooks were written so it's yeah. not it's not there so how, how is it like recognized in this day and age because it's, it's a very big contributory factor I think this is a conversation that's become like really relevant recently. A lot of people are having it. Um, and that's because of new conversations around toxic masculinity yeah. and you know, what makes masculinity toxic, mm. what factors have they identified where they say, no, the way men are men is bad. It causes harm in society. Yeah. You know? So I think personally for me, it really comes down to what is the function of masculinity? Yeah. In any context that you go into, what is the function? Right, because there is the, oh look, you're a man. Yeah. Right, there's the, the fact that you're a male. But because you're male, how are you expected to present in society? Yeah. What, a, what are you expected to do in society? And I think that contributes a lot to what we see. Because for a man, there are certain roles you have to perform in order to be recognized and validated as a man. Exactly. You know what I mean? And if you don't do it, you are immediately, uh, should I say, deplatformed. Mm. They take away your platform. You no longer have social capital. The moment mm. your masculinity has been called into question and challenged, it is hard to reclaim it. And the reason why I brought Will Smith up is because you know we're looking at uh, vulnerability yeah. and what happens when you express vulnerability as a man. Whereas you know he came forward and he admitted like, no, my wife um, had an extramarital affair. Yeah. And he was like, no, I had it too. I also had other partners. You guys yeah. just don't know about her. Yeah. But you know, because she had a partner, suddenly it was like, oh, he wasn't man enough. He mm. couldn't keep his uh, partner in check. He couldn't keep he her satisfied. satisfied. And because of that, it was like, he wasn't man enough. He was yeah. embarrassed. Mm. And his manhood was immediately brought into question. So I think that really contributes to, you know, that fragility of masculinity. It's this thing that is so sensitive. It is so easy to lose. Yeah. Right. And I think that's why a lot of us, myself included, we protect our masculinity with our lives. Mm. Right. We are so careful with how we present ourselves in society because we are worried that other men or women are then going to say, what kind of man are you? Like, how, how are you behaving this way? You know, yeah. why are you talking like that? Yeah. Why are you dressing like that? Yeah. Why are you behaving this like way? That's not how, what men do. What kind of man are you? You know, yeah. like, are you protecting? Are you providing? Are you, um, are you keeping us safe? safe. Are, are you taking care of us? Yeah. And it even comes into question when a man is vulnerable, where it's like, sure. And I think a lot of men experience this, where they're like, you know what? I was vulnerable with my partner, right? Mm. And I cried in front of her and she supported me. And then on the other hand, it'd be like, but only the first time I cried. The second time I cried, <laughs> I was like, oh, why are you still crying, my man? And the third time I cried, it's like, hi, guys, my man is always crying. What's going on? And then the fourth or fifth time, she's like, why is he still crying? Yeah. Why isn't he like, you yeah. know? So it, it starts going into question where men are like, the more vulnerable I am, or the more often yeah. I'm vulnerable, it's then like my ability to fulfill my role as a man, to protect and provide yeah. is immediately questioned. So I can't afford to express that vulnerability because yeah. the moment I do, I lose all privileges of being a man. Because the moment you're in a space and you're not treated like a man, it's so devaluing. Yeah. Exactly. You know, you sit there, you feel so small. Yeah, exactly. So you know, it's like, it's like, yeah, you do feel like you're in a room, but you're not, you're not, you're not heard. You're not, you're not, you're it's not. like you're no longer valuable. Mm. It's like, this is, we need men 
but not this man. And I see this a lot on social media, especially with this Umlando challenge that's been going around. Yeah. You know, men are like shirtless and they're uh, shaking their hips. And then there are a lot of comments always going around like, hi guys, men need to go back to war. Like, what, what, what are we seeing? What is this? And I'm like, sure, like, these are some of the problems that we have where it's like yeah. the moment you see men moving out of that mode of this is how yeah. men behave, there's immediately a question like, yo, we need to go back because we did something wrong. Yeah. So and this vulnerable male we're asking for, we're like, it's important. We need it for male mental health. Men need to express their vulnerabilities. But the moment we do, our vulnerability is weaponized against us. Yeah. It's like you can't be vulnerable and be a man and keep that social capital 100%. so it's like choose one yeah. and i won't lie i know a lot of men was like i would rather choose my social capital exactly. vulnerability i'm gonna keep it in check I'm gonna keep it 100 <laughs> i'll be good yeah you know which is, which is yeah dude it's scary um one last thing i wanted to also touch on is you know like like how we say in our like societies um, like therapy and and like mental illness is stigmatized and and like yesterday you were schooling me on how like sort of like our history with with psychology especially as yeah. a country is not it's not really it's not really that great you know it's not it's yeah. really not i think um any any industry any industry at some point needs to uh should i say justify its presence in society mm. right why is this industry needed yeah and we see it not just with psychology for example i think even computers or filmmaking had to justify its presence in society people yeah. are like uh, we don't really need this it's a luxury sort of thing mm. right so with psychology there's this poor history because um way back when especially for black people yeah. psychology is something that was used against them yeah right like um I was speaking with a, a, a colleague not too long ago and we were talking about the history of, you know, psychological testing in the country yeah. where it's like back during the apartheid days, you know, like when people were talking about, oh, we should separate the schools between black schools and white yeah. schools. Um, people, some of the justifications used were that black kids aren't as smart as white kids black or black kids. people aren't as smart as white people. Yeah. Therefore, white people should be in these schools with this tougher curriculum and we should limit the yeah. black curriculum because they don't have the mental capacity yeah, to, 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 and to, to, to. psychological testing and IQ tests were used to justify it. It was like, look at the results. Yeah, exactly. Clearly, Which, some are performing better. Exactly. But, you know, in those results, context wasn't, you know, it wasn't mm. added. There was no nuance where it was like, you know, naturally, anyone who grew up in a space with more resources will exactly. perform better. Exactly. Because they've been allowed more opportunities to develop and exactly. be exposed and learn certain things. Exactly. So it, it's better. Which is, which is why I feel like, you know, as the black man, um, the reason like specific attention should be put on him is because that is exactly the person who's been given the least resources but has the most amount of expectation, you know, in society. Yeah. And we've seen, like I, said, I mentioned with the crime and the things that happened, that how... how um, detrimental that is because yeah. like we, we dude we've had we've been out of like um apartheid for like 26 almost, years yeah like 26 oh. 20, 27 years 27 years yes 28 years this year yeah and if you look at anything great in the world nothing happens that quickly you know but suddenly you know like everybody wants to be on the level of like rich billionaires all across the world and like it doesn't help that like also like our women sometimes have those expectations of like yeah but you're a man why aren't you making this much and this much and this much 
and you know just uh, like throws us into just like a never-ending cycle of yeah i have to make money and be like this by any means and we never look at like yo it's a new age women and men have similar opportunities and yeah. sometimes you know to make up for it women have better opportunities so why can't we accept that we actually have like the same potential to make money or we have the same potential to do this and this and like just be kinder you know because <laughs> if that doesn't happen you know and, and you look at like the the lens of society which is social media now it's just like impossible to find your space as a man yeah. because you have more to offer than just money and and security you know yeah there's so much more i think i yet again that's a conversation that i think needs like a lot of nuance yeah, right because <laughs> like um i always say personally i think we need to be able to to differentiate right between yeah. an individual issue and a social issue yeah so what i mean by that is when we say it's an individual issue is it that this person is uh struggling or experiencing difficulty because there are issues specific to them yeah. oh, like yeah. they're struggling but everyone else is okay I see. right or is it a social issue where we're seeing in this community of people I see. all the men are struggling or I everyone see. men and women and children are struggling what's happening mm. right um so a lot of the issues with black men where you're mentioning things like crime etc those are from my understanding even male mental health yeah these are social issues because there are social factors contributing to those difficulties. 100%. You know, the high crime rate is, I think, directly linked to low employment opportunities, which 100%. is then because of the disparity between, you know, access to education. What is the quality of your education? Mm. Um, are you able to afford tertiary education, which increases your likelihood of gaining employment? Yeah. And then you find a lot of people who've not been allowed access to education, struggling now, they're like, I need to survive. So it's either I'm going to sit here and, you know, um, go to the streets or I'm going to enter a life of crime because I need to provide either for me or for my uh, dependents, yeah. whether it's my kids, my brothers, my sister, my mother, I need to do something, yeah. you know. Okay. So then they go in and some choose a life of crime because it's the only choice accessible exactly. to them, you know. So it's, it's a social problem. Yeah. To fix that issue, we need to address this other one exactly. of uh, the inequality. of And exactly. South Africa is actually... The most unequal society in the world according to the un yeah there was the stats after the budget speech say 46 percent of our uh country relies on uh government assistance yeah so imagine 46 percent of your country can't survive without government uh, uh financing every month yeah how is like 54 percent of the country which don't even have like great jobs going to finance that many people it's and then when you look at it you look at the stats it's like it's black people there's people like this yeah but you don't look at the stats of like but where where is the finance where's the where, good education where is, is it right? is that? i think i i saw this crazy stat which um i'd have to find the citation i can maybe yeah. give it to you later which says that the richest 10 percent in the country um hold 60 percent of the wealth yeah i've seen that as well right it's ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous and the poorest 60 percent hold maybe 10 percent of the wealth which is how do you majority black people like but before i let you go bro, i wanted to discuss something because you know like now with the war in, in between russia and uh, and ukraine a lot of people like in the country are making memes you know <laughs> world war three world war three <laughs> memes and all of that actually someone explained because um, like people don't really understand what it means. Yeah. But I saw like a great explanation this morning. So so it's like this. So it's like Russia. It's like Ukraine used to belong to Russia, right? And then Ukraine was uh, Russia was acting a bit a bit funny. So <laughs> Ukraine left Russia, right? 
And then Ukraine was trying to hook up with this new dude, which is NATO, right? <laughs> and then Russia was like, nah, I'm going to get Ukraine back, which is completely Kanye, <laughs> Kim, and Pete Davidson, right? <laughs> so, I think I saw that meme. I saw so, that meme. I saw if you that understand one. the war, that's the, the basic explanation. <laughs> but, like, is it really, like, as jokey as it is? Or, like, do countries like South Africa actually, like, stand to lose a lot? You know, like, you know, um, our... Naledi Pando was like, yo, Russia, y'all need to stay back. And a lot of memes are coming up with that. Which people South say, Africa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people are saying, which, which nukes are you going to send? Which bomb are you going to send? Yeah. So, yeah, is it, is it like really psychologically a cause for worry? Because like now we've recently like seen petrol go above 20 rand. Yeah. And someone said it might even go to like 30 rand. If, it if might. Like, you know, so. Like, um, that's actually pretty true. Those concerns are valid. Because... Um, we live in a more globalized world, right? And the truth is, Russia is one of the biggest global exporters of oil. Yeah. So if they're heavily sanctioned, that might impact the global distribution. Now, I'm not too sure if it's only going to impact European countries or if it's going to impact some African nations as well. But there's a chance that if it impacts European nations, it then impacts uh, African nations because we have a relationship with those European nations. So if the, you know, whenever resources are scarce, people tend to hoard them for themselves. Yeah. So they might not be, we're not trying to export to other African nations like that because we don't have enough for ourselves. So there might be an impact where we start seeing less oil just circulating in the economy and then oil prices go up. So I think that's the global concern because it's like whatever is happening in that war, the more countries get involved, the, the, more, other, uh, the more access to other resources might become a problem if Russia continues to be as heavily sanctioned as they are now there's a possibility it's not certain this is currently just thoughts going around like this is how it might be affected but it's definitely a possibility but i also think in terms of the memes going around i know people always tend to go at someone when they're using humor to cope with situations but personally i understand why humor has become a coping mechanism because when you're faced with this reality of you know this event that's so concerning and so overwhelming and you have nothing else, no, other, no access to other resources to do, what else can you use but humor? 100%. You know, it, it becomes funny. So you're like, all right, I'm, we can do nothing else. We're going to meme it. And if anything, South Africa has shown uh, in history that if they're going to use anything, they're going to use humor. Yeah, but I completely agree, bro. Like, sometimes all you can do is laugh about it. Yeah. And, you know, if there was a war on memes and stuff, we'd probably be right up there. Yeah, I, I think humor is actually a really... Yeah healthy coping mechanism. It can be a very annoying coping mechanism for people because they're like, this is serious, take it seriously. Yeah. But it's like, humor is helping me cope. Yeah, with this. You, can't, it, you can't really affect the situation much. Yeah, like, yeah. if all I can do is laugh about it, at least let me enjoy that. And I think, you know, you often hear this joke where people say the funniest people are often the ones coping with the most difficulty. Because there is that relationship between humor as a coping mechanism and tragedy or yeah. coping with difficult experiences. 100%. And I think that's testament to our show because even through the memes, I mean, there was actually something I saw. Uh, this guy was like, uh, the people that get the news from CNN are fighting the people that get the news from Fox News. And I'm just here <laughs> getting my news from memes. <laughs> and there's actually a lot of news that, you know, that uh, comes out in the memes. And our show is like testament to that because we use like humor and satire to get like news across. Yeah. So, yeah. But yeah, but in closing, thank you so much for like, for like joining us, you know. And um, like, we, like we spoke about the need for representation in the field, you know, like yeah. we, we need 
more of our people to go into these practices and help more of our people. And we also need more men to go in and help more men. So yes. for like for like somebody who, who might be watching this and be like, yo, I actually like don't realize like uh, psychology. I didn't think of psychology as a career option. Uh, yeah. how, how do you actually like get to becoming a psychologist? Yeah. Well, uh, naturally it depends on wherever you are in the world. Yeah. Um, but I can speak on you know what's needed in South Africa okay. and Namibia. Those are the places I've exposure to. Yeah. I believe actually most African nations. Yeah. So uh, in most places that you are, what's required to become a clinical psychologist is that you have up to a master's level training. So you have to do your undergrad, uh, usually in Bachelor of the Arts. And I then see. you have psychology as one of your options. Your and then, yeah, in your undergrad. Oh, I see. I so see. Uh, psychology has to be one of your majors. I see. And then after that, you can apply for an honors in psychology. I see. And then from the honors, you then apply to become uh, for a master's program Dang. wherever in the country. So yeah. I should mention that selection into these programs can be quite intense. Uh, I believe honors tends to only accept up to 10% of candidates that apply. And I'm being very serious. And masters is even smaller, where they tend to accept up to was it one to six percent, because wow. masters classes tend to be very small. Ah, um, in undergrad, you find the classes maybe one, two hundred, maybe even three hundred, mm. depending on how big the university is. Yeah. At honors level, most classes are fifty to eighty, depending on the university. At masters level, most are six, six students. You're we lying. were seven. I did my masters at the University of Johannesburg, and we were a class of seven. Um, the largest class I know of is at WITS where they accept up to 12 candidates wow. for each category. Yeah. So it can be very competitive, but I think it can also be a very rewarding career, you know, once yeah. you're in. But I, I like to just let people know that, you know, getting to that stage is quite difficult. Yeah. Anyone interested in pursuing psychology, as a, if you're still studying, I recommend finding resources online that will help you, mm. you know, learn more about the field and demystify Because right now it's this yeah. mysterious thing. It's yeah, like, oh, psychology, but how do I get there? Yeah. Uh, a place with a great initiative, there is, I think I know, two, two avenues online, social media. Mm. There is a YouTube channel as well, yeah. uh, Unalome Wellness & Co. I think I worked with her earlier. Her okay. name is Lauren. She has a channel where she speaks of her journey getting into psychology. Yeah. Uh, she's she's also pretty cool. She lets people know you know what happened, what's mm. needed. She gives tips as well. Yeah. And there is another avenue on Instagram called Cognition and Co. I see. So they also give a lot of information how to enter the field yeah. and give tips as well. They hold seminars and how they can help you get in. Mm. So those are avenues you can use. Yeah. There are other parts of the world where you can't practice with your masters. You need a PhD. So that's like, that's uh, I believe, North America, yeah. so the, the United States, Canada, yeah. and Europe. Yeah. You need a PhD to practice clinical that's psychology. And how far are you in your journey? I'm currently, uh, I just completed my master's degree mm. uh, in clinical psychology. Um, now an intern. So usually what happens is you do the theoretical part. So you go to, yeah. you start master's, you start doing the school training, learning the theory, they start teaching you how to practice. So we have practicals. Yeah. And then afterwards, there needs to be a sort of test to see how well you perform in the field and not just yeah. in an exam or in a yeah, controlled setting of practicals. Yeah. So then you do a 12-month internship at a hospital. So currently that's what I'm doing. I'm about six months into my internship. I'm scheduled to finish that in August, at which point you then have to sit for the board exam with the Health Professionals Council of South Africa yeah. to become registered as a clinical psychologist. 
and then you have to complete one year community service yeah. um, at a yet again at a hospital in the country. And only then, once you completed your community service, can you practice as a clinical psychologist in South Africa. So I'm an intern, which means I'm still working under supervision. So everything I do is supervised by a registered clinical psychologist. Or yeah. I'm at a hospital, so it's by a, a team yeah, of no, you know, a, an entire psychology department. Yeah, I feel like I misled the people. I mean, say if you've got 10 years to spare. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it, no, takes, just it takes it's, about it's, it's really six, years. six years. Yeah, six years. Six years, if, you, if you go straight. Some yeah. people might experience delays, you yeah. know, for example, getting into the honors program might take more than one attempt. Yeah, no, or getting into the master's program might take more than one attempt. But yeah, that's about the years. normal time it takes to complete a VIS three year degree. So it's not it's not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's not so bad. But yeah, dude. Yeah. Thank you so much for for, for coming through, Gomez. Really appreciate it. And hope to see more of you on the show, you know, as we yeah. you know, continue to unpack this issue that's that's like it's not going anywhere. You know, they just like yeah. Incidents like this, which spark up a conversation, but it's definitely not going anywhere. So yeah. I look forward to like continuing the relationship. Yeah. And yeah. No, but, thank, thank you for having me. Because I think, you know, um, and as you mentioned, the issues aren't going anywhere. Yeah. And it's just sometimes there are events which become important in the exactly. moment. And, you know, it brings everything to the surface. But I think we should really start having more conversations, more conversations. of this nature, not just for men. I think yeah. women also need their own spaces yeah, and even mixed spaces, because it's not like we have men in their own country, and women in their own. Yeah. We're sharing space, exactly. and we need to learn to share those spaces. And we need to learn to relate to each other and understand these things. Because right, so right now, it sometimes feels like we're talking past each other. Yeah. You know, where men will be like, no, women are the problem. We yeah. can't be vulnerable around them. And women are like, men are the problem. We don't feel safe around you. And I think we're now so you know, really understanding each other and the issues that are happening because I think yeah. there are a lot of social issues in the country 100%. and we need to start creating more spaces, starting more conversations on how to address those issues. 100%. Couldn't agree more. But yeah, uh, for this week, guys, that's all we have for you. Uh, thanks for, for watching. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget to do the usual. Leave a comment, like the video, subscribe, share it with a friend. And until next week, see you. Cheers.